Hey there, my name is Chris Trinetti, and I am the host of Open Minded Chris, which is the first ever podcast and in-person meetup hybrid. The Open Minded Chris podcast will largely feature insights and recaps from our weekly in-person gatherings, as well as some of my personal insights based on what I'm working on, reading, listening to, or thinking about. Each week, our community gets together for discos, which are our in-person conversations exploring curiosities, ideas, relationships, and anything else on our minds, usually fueled by some form of caffeine and or alcohol. Discos are held all throughout Chicago in different neighborhoods at cafes, bars, and co-working spaces with our tight-knit community of, as the name suggests, open-minded individuals. I am very excited about today's episode because it is our first ever disco recap, which will be the main format moving forward. Our first disco went better than I could have ever imagined, and we talked about everything from what we wanted to be as a child growing up, favorite cereals, and we dug into why we should care about interpersonal communication and being open-minded. Our conversation immediately went into social media, relationships, book recommendations, and even one of Aristotle's philosophies on friendship. We discussed curiosity versus open-mindedness and what the differences between those are, and one of our discoers even gave us a great visual to work with and keep in mind around that topic. Our disco recap episodes will usually feature a one-on-one chat with a community member, but due to terrible audio quality, I did not include it. So with that, I bring you episode number three. Hope you enjoy. We are live. It is Sunday, October. Wow, October. It's crazy. Uh, this year has just flown by. It is October 7th, and I am again sitting in my apartment in Chicago, Illinois, recording this. And I am very excited because though this is episode number three, this is the first episode where I'll be recapping a disco as well as sharing some insights from one of our community members one on one. And for those of you who don't know, or this is your first time listening, or you've just, I don't know, somehow you've stumbled upon this, discos are short for discourse, and they are in-person gatherings that I create uh, to explore curiosities, topics, issues, or anything else in our mind. And we had our first ever disco, I think it was on the 27th of September, so two Thursdays ago. And it was about a thousand times better than I was expecting. And I, I wasn't expecting it to, to be bad, but I was aware of the, the potential for it to crash and burn. I got seven people in a room outside myself, so um, I was the eighth person. I got seven people in a room talking about Something that prior to that they weren't aware of. They didn't know what the topic was going to be. And not only that, but they have never done anything like this before. So obviously with anything new, there is a lot of room for error. But it went better than I ever could have imagined. We spoke for over two hours. After warming up a little bit, everyone was comfortable. The conversation was fluid. There was almost no pauses or lulls in the conversation I don't think it was really awkward ever, maybe just at the beginning of people not knowing what the hell was going on, 
But it was great, and I am excited to share some of the insights that came from it because I learned a lot. I grew just in that that two-hour period. And I'm going to take you kind of through the start to finish of, of what went down. So we partnered up with Kibbutz Nest, which if you haven't been to Kibbutz Nest, if you live in Chicago, I highly recommend it because it is just a truly unique place. Uh, the, from the owners to the design to their mission, everything about it is, uh, it's just, it's, yeah, it's just unique. You, you don't find too many places like that. Uh, the owner, Annie, is this Italian woman who put me to shame because she, I told her I was Italian, or she guessed because my name, Trinetti, is, uh, it's, <laughs> it's slightly Italian. It sounds like a pasta dish. But she started talking to me in Italian. I'm like, oh, wow, that's great. Um, I don't, I can't speak Italian like that. I can greet you and maybe hold a very basic conversation, but she clearly is fluent. And then in addition to that, her bartender, I think her name was Paige. I don't think she was Italian, but she was also fluent in Italian. So I didn't know what was going on there. I thought it was being like put to the test by my Italian ancestors, but their team is awesome. Kibitz Nest is great. And I'm actually going to pull up because I didn't, I didn't realize this until I've got my computer here recording, but also I can look things up. I just realized, but once we, we partnered with them to have a table reserved for us, have some wine, I looked up their website to learn more about them. And if you go to their homepage, it says, where old-fashioned human connection is king. We invite you to play. What's happening? What is that noise? I don't know. Uh, like I said, in Chicago, living on a busy street. Urban sound effects. We just got to deal with them. All right, but the website, the homepage, it says, we invite you to play board games, read and or buy art books, or they say the liberal arts books. I don't know what that means. There's a wide selection of books, but... Attend an event, type on an old typewriter. They also have a piano there, which I thought was pretty cool. Watch an old movie, peruse our gifts and cards, and then relax with a beer, a glass of wine, or a cup of coffee or tea. No worries, your laptop is still in your life, but now you can enjoy a little more balance. So it's a Wi-Fi-free zone, which I appreciate. Uh, I appreciate why they're doing it. But I think the key is to just, it's a place that they're trying to say is human connection is king. Come here to actually talk to someone because those spaces are so few and far between. We now look for spaces that are always have Wi-Fi, which is my preference. Even I think they can still accomplish what they want to and still have Wi-Fi. But it's a, it's a unique place. It is It is special and you can feel that just the second you walk in. So... I encourage you to go there, say hi to Annie, tell her we sent you, tell her you're part of the open-minded Chris community, and you're here to disco, even though you're not. I guess you could disco alone. You only need two people. This is actually a good starting point, because at the beginning of the disco, I said some housekeeping rules. Housekeeping. And those are pretty short. Basically, I just said... Be present. It's two hours. Just be here. Listen with an open mind. Uh, speak with 
some vulnerability if it work if it requires that speak with an open heart try not to be on your phone and we're all in the same boat and the analogy i provided for that that statement we're all in the same boat was kind of like everyone's been out to dinner and they've been the person to receive their meal last and then everyone it's you know obviously courteous to say i'll wait until your food comes out but when you are in that position, the last thing you want to do is for everyone to be sitting there with their food waiting on you. It's just awkward. And it's funny because if they were in your position, even though they're waiting, they would still want you to not wait. So that's what I said to everyone. I said, as it relates to vulnerability and being vulnerable and sharing, that as a listener, as someone who's hearing someone speak, you want them to be vulnerable. You want to hear what they're thinking about, and you want to hear that uh, conveyed verbally without them being fearful of your judgment. So when you're speaking, keeping that in mind that everyone ha- shares that sentiment, keep that in mind when you're speaking to know that, hey, I can actually speak because I know that when I'm listening, I'm not judging, I want them to share. So I encouraged everyone to, to do that. So there were kind of three housekeeping rules, and the phones for future all future discos, I probably will be more black and white with phones because there were a couple times when uh, a, f- a few, what would you call them, discoers, dancers? No, dancers is weird. A few discoers who were answering emails on their phones, which I get. I am I am victim to emailing at all hours of the day. But the benefit of this is to intentionally just unplug or put that aside and just be present because it's so rare that we are nowadays unless you're an avid meditator or your work requires you to be very present like a server or or someone who cannot physically be on their phone so i think for a future reference i might say hey just put your phone away and then encourage people rsvping to the discos that if you, or maybe who have already RSVP'd yes, but something came up with work, just don't show up because you won't get as much out of it. Everyone else will probably get a little bit less out of it if they're sharing and they feel like no one's listening. So anyways, I'm learning on the go, and I think that was kind of the feedback from everyone else as well. And then you don't want to be that person on your phone because then you feel it. So it's it, it's a win-win if you just are either there and you can be present or if not and you got to take care of your business, then do so. So that was, that was the first thing we covered. And then second, I hesitate to say icebreakers, but I did, I did uh, unleash some easier questions and topics to start out with. And I think that was just, that was actually a recommendation from my co-founder, Emily, who wasn't able to be there, but she is, who inspired me to, to create this. She's introduced me to a tight-knit community of people getting together over breakfast or dinner and talking about meaningful, meaningful topics. So I asked some intro questions. The first was, what is your name and your neighborhood versus the alternative, which would be name and your profession. And the reason why I said neighborhood versus profession 
it kind of served two purposes. One, I wanted to collect some data on my members of where do they live so for future ones I can be more respectful of people's schedules and their location to try to make it more convenient for the masses. So name a neighborhood and also the reason why I said neighborhood instead of profession is because a lot of people don't think of themselves as others would think of them if they told them their profession. And the best example I can give is myself. When I was in investment banking and someone said, what do you do? And I said, I'm an investment banker. They have an Im- I hated knowing what their image of me was. And there's a lot of great investment bankers out there, but there's also a lot of stereotypical ones. And, and not only that, of like just the, the stereotype of an investment banker, but even when I went to work, I felt like I was wearing, instead of a suit, I was wearing a clown suit. Yes, I'm an investment banker, but I actually don't feel like that. I don't intend on being one for much longer, which it turned out I wasn't. So if I'm facilitating introductions and guiding those, I don't want people to, I don't want them to be listening to someone thinking, oh, they're a lawyer or, oh, they're a tech salesman or, oh, they're a pediatrician. Though that is helpful information and it serves a purpose, for this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters more about what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and how you share that with everyone. So intros and neighborhood, although your neighborhood doesn't define you either, but I think it's a more interesting data point. So a lot of people were in Lincoln Park, which was good because our, our disco was in Lincoln Park. I think it would be nice to have one in downtown next time, but which is actually this week. So we shall see. Although I do love Kibbutz Nest. They are a great partner. Shout out to Kibbutz Nest. The second question I proposed was, as a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? And this question was, it was top of mind for me because I just realized a few weeks ago or not just realized, I recently remembered a few weeks ago what I wanted to be when I was a child. And the answer to that for me is an architect. And I realized that because the work I'm doing now for a project that I've been working on for the past two years is now at the point where finally we can begin working with architects. So we've been researching them, having conversations with them. But I realized that I, I'm like, why do I love this so much? I get so excited about it. I love the design aspect of it, which is something that in all of my years that I have worked, that I, it's not been relevant until now. As a kid, I used to play with Legos every single day. I had my own little Lego land in my room. I was super OCD about it. Like if you touched one of my spaceships, like move them, I would know. I would come in at family dinner. All right, who, uh, who did it? Who touched aircraft number seven? I know you did, you son of a bitch. My mom would be like, oh, I was cleaning. I was like, mom, what did I tell you about cleaning the Legos? I will take care of those. So I was kind of a psycho. I'm definitely a neat freak today. My brother and sister would probably say I have OCD. I don't think I'm crazy about it. I mean, I've improved over the years. As a child, I was 
much more problematic. <laughs> it ruined my life. No, I, I was just, I was a nut about it. Like, I still am, but I'm just not as, <laughs> I think maybe I do a better job at internalizing it. Like, if someone moves something, I'm like, oh, cool, cool, cool. And then they'll leave, and then I'll move it back. So anyway, as a child, I loved Legos is what I'm getting at. And because of that, because I love designing things, creating these little worlds and buildings and spacecrafts, is why I want to be an architect. And I realized that when I was working with them, I'm like, oh, shit, I used to want to be an architect as a kid. And I got all excited, and I went home that night and was looking up architecture school Turns out it's a shit ton of money and five years. So I was like, all right, well, for now, I'll just enjoy the fact that I'm kind of circling back on a childhood aspiration and I'll leave it there. And then if my career takes another turn, maybe I can explore that. But for now, uh, I'll just appreciate that, that realization and reflection. So I proposed that question to the group because I was interested to hear what other people wanted to be when they were a child. Obviously, it'd be exciting if there were any matches, like some, I wanted to be a doctor and they were a doctor. Uh, but I had the feeling that most people, most people don't end up being what they want to be when they're four years old and for many good reasons. But some of the answers we received were baseball player, primatologist, pediatrician, and chef. And there were a few more that I, I can't remember. And before I get into my thoughts around those, I do want to say that uh, when, I, when I said some of those housekeeping rules, one of them was be present because I will be taking notes. I was so absorbed by the conversation that I took very few notes. And I, I even felt I should probably ask them what they thought of me taking notes because I felt it was distracting. And then I felt like while I was taking notes, I couldn't be present and I couldn't listen and I wouldn't remember as well and and personally get as much out of it. So yeah, maybe in the future I'll do dragon dictation or something like that that converts audio to text. But so I missed a few a few things or several things in all of my notes. So we had baseball player, primatologist, pediatrician, and chef are the ones that I wrote down and remembered and remembered. And when I reflect on these answers, these responses from uh, the, each individual and their respective childhood aspiration, it's pretty funny because if you distill each of those down to their basic elements, so what makes a baseball player a baseball player, a primatologist a primatologist, pediatrician a pediatrician, chef a chef, I can see those elements in that individual. Like for a pediatrician, that, that takes a level of empathy, selflessness, care, dedication, commitment, being very values-oriented because you're, you're serving kids. It's not the profession that's going to make you a millionaire, right? And if you distill those elements, I can see those in that individual. And same thing with a chef. A chef takes a lot of creativity and actual culinary talent, and, and they do have that. So... I think it's it's cool to hear it, whether or not it's even if it's far fetched. Like a baseball player, yes, I, a lot of children uh, want to be professional athletes when they grow up, and 
since professional athletes are like point zero 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 one percent of the people who play sports i don't i'm just pulling that statistic out of my ass but you know you you get what i'm uh, hinting at is that it's a very select amount of people and it's largely based on yes dedication and hard work and commitment but also there needs to be some physical talent there and i think that the the individual who said baseball player could have been and that's probably the nicest I've ever been to him telling him he could have been a pro baseball player but he was really and is really talented at baseball but he just chose the path of football he committed himself to football maybe he could have been a professional baseball player so anyway it's always it's always funny to hear what kids want to be when they grew up I also at one point wanted to be a construction worker which again isn't that far off from from architects and then the next question I proposed to the group was what is your favorite cereal? So the hard-hitting questions that everyone wants to know. This was, I mean, I was blown away. I was blown away at some of the answers. Let me just list them off. Cheerios was the first, which is absolutely absurd. As someone who grew up eating Honey Nut Cheerios, Honey Nut Cheerios probably represented 80 to 90% of my childhood cereal consumption. So as someone who grew up eating Honey Nut Cheerios, I couldn't even fathom eating regular Cheerios. And it's all relative because my mother would not let me have, the fan favorite of the group was Lucky Charms. She would not let me have Lucky Charms, but then there would be like once a year, maybe once every two years where I would beg her for some Lucky Charms and she would, she would let me eat them. But Cheerios? I mean, at some point you got to stand your ground. For whoever said that, you have to, t- hey, mom, dad, let's, let's, uh, why don't we meet in the middle here? You want me to eat healthy cereal? I think that Honey Nut Cheerios will accomplish that. Regular Cheerios is just, that's not fair. I'm being dramatic, of course. Uh, next was Honey Bunches of Oats, which is respectable. That's a respectable cereal choice, a little sweet, not like your Cocoa Puffs sweetness level. And then Lucky Charms. Several people said Lucky Charms. My personal favorite is Life Cereal. I said I grew up eating Honey Nut Cheerios, but Life was where it was at. And then someone said they don't, they, I forget if they just have never eaten it before, like a Kylie Jenner type of deal, or if they just said they don't like it, like they had it and they don't like it. I think that was it, which again, blew my mind. Because cereal is just great. I thought that was something all of us, like the one thing that all of us humans, it's like we know we all want love, we want purpose, and we want to eat cereal. I don't eat that much cereal now, but when I go home, I will get a Tupperware bowl and go to town on some cereal. So after we got through those, those burning questions, We got into the meat and potatoes of the discussion, which is what guided our two-plus hours of conversation. And for our first disco, I thought it was only appropriate to, again, kind of convey my sentiment around why I'm doing this. How did this come about? Why are we sitting at a table right now with wine and beer and cookies and... Uh, with with a bunch of people that we don't know. 
I knew everyone, but most people there didn't didn't know each other. I think one or two people was the the max of of, of someone knowing other people in the in the disco. So I wanted to introduce this because I also realized that half of the people there probably didn't listen to the the intro episodes of the podcast, which again is fine. I don't I didn't create that to uh, to go viral. I just created it to. Uh, actually, it, just for me to try to articulate a lot that's been on my mind over the past few years, which has led to this. So I briefly summarized those intro episodes. So how my experience led to me creating this, led me here, led us here, and really two two realizations, philosophies, ideologies, mindsets that that came out of that experience. And those two, as many know, if you've even just seen the, the initial Instagram post, those two mindsets or philosophies that, that guide my life currently, that currently are very important to me, are open-mindedness, hence the name, and interpersonal communication. So to me personally, open-mindedness and interpersonal communication are immensely important and significant in my life. But that's just me. But even when you look outside of my individual view, if you look at leading research from, or it doesn't even have to be leading research, it's been around for a while, but anthropology and sociology and psychology and even evolutionary research, uh, you'll see that these trends are very important to how we got here today. Being open-minded, receiving our receptiveness to new ideas and then uh, interpersonal communication. So actually uh, getting together in person and uh, communicating in the most effective way possible. These are immensely important to how we got to where we are today. But if you look at trends in our society uh, that are largely due to advancements in technology, these are being challenged. They are uh, creating a culture of ideological polarization where we are now being closed-minded around ideas that are different than ours. And virtual communication trends are challenging interpersonal communication. So things like texting and emailing and even calls and uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So as a society... We are moving away from these two qualities. And I clearly see a problem with it. I think a lot of people I admire and follow see a problem with it. But I'm interested in the group. So I asked the group, why, if at all, are these important to you? And if so, why should we care? And what can we do as individuals, as a community, as a society to combat these trends because technology is not going anywhere. And I am very happy about that because it's what inspires me professionally. It's what runs my life. I would not be able to get anywhere without Google Maps. Like genuinely, I mean, I could, I would get to places. It would just take me a lot longer because I'd figure it out. I'd get lost, but I'd figure it out, you know, but thanks, <laughs> thanks to Google Maps, it's probably saved me hundreds of hours in efficiency in my day-to-day -day logistics. So after I proposed this question, everyone 
sat there for a few seconds and then someone spoke up and from there it was about two plus hours of conversation uninterrupted. And I thought was really fascinating about how this all started is that it immediately went to work. The first person that spoke was talking about communicating and we, we first, we got into interpersonal communication first for about probably an hour plus. The open-mindedness discussion came later, which I'll get to. But the first thing that came up was communicating in the workplace. And my interpretation of that is kind of back to what I said about why I didn't ask people to say their, their, what they do for work, you know, what they do professionally, is that that's the easy question. That's the easy bullshit question that we use to define people. So I think that because we're, we're, because we're programmed to say, what do you do? I mean, at networking events, that's the point is to say what you do. But there's actually research, uh, a company here in Chicago, uh, Lisa Carroll is the CEO and founder of a company called Proxfinity that creates technology for networking. And she can show that her networking events using Proxfinity Tech are 300% more efficient, or, or sorry, more effective, meaning people are getting more out of them with her technology. And what is her technology? That tech is these badges that you wear. So instead of a badge that would say Chris Trinetti and my company, it would just be a blank, it's like a little device. And pre-event, you would, uh, you would be sent a survey and then you'd be asked to fill out that survey. And the survey would have questions like, it, they could be as, as insignificant as, what's your favorite food? To how much do you like networking events? Or what do you want to get out of this? Or what industry are you in? What do you want to learn more about? And so the questions can be programmed as, you know, as, it could be as custom as you want. When you're walking past someone, if you match on one or more of those topics, your respective initials would light up on the other person's lanyard device. And then you'd be like, oh, hey, we matched. And then because it was green, you know that it was your favorite food. Hey, we both like sushi. Cool. What's your favorite spot in Chicago? Oh, awesome. Mine's this too. Like, wow, I'm surprised I've never seen you. I go every Thursday. What? No way. I go every Wednesday. So she's shown that her events are more effective because of technology. And the most interesting insight from that is that she can track how long people are talking, which is a very cool data point to have. And they're talking more about personal stuff. And that's just a pretty cool insight. So even though that we're programmed, even the word networking, it implies, all right, we're going to talk business and we're going to get deals done and we're going to, you know, let's, let's make this happen. And we'll exchange business cards and I'll keep it on my desk and I'll never reach out to you because we really don't have that much in common. We're each trying to sell each other stuff. As you can tell, I do not like networking events. But it was funny to hear that, and, and, and no surprise, that we Im immediately went to communicating at work. So anyway, you should look up Proxfinity if you have any use for it or reach out to me. I know Lisa well and would be happy to connect anyone who has a need to support her because they are doing great things. They're growing like crazy. But 
not the point. I'm not, not a sale. I don't work for Proxfinity. I just, I like what I like, people, all right? So we started talking about work communication and things like people's thoughts around email and Slack came up and meetings. And, and these are all the different tools that we use to communicate in the workplace. And to me, the most compelling insight from that is that the professional world actually does a pretty good job at using technology as a tool. And that's because it's how it's sold. It's sold, use Slack because it's going to help your team communicate better on projects, on topics. It's, it's more, it's, uh, it has better search functions for the workplace versus email. And, you know, people are sick of getting emails that are like, hey, what's going on with this? Rather, just Slack someone, hey, what are you doing? They're at their desk, they see it, and you can send gifts. And someone spoke up and was like, yeah, I actually Slack the guy right next to me all day. And it's in a way, there, it serves a purpose. And even if it's to just send gifts to the other and it's humorous, gets you through your day, that serves a purpose. The consensus was that tech does a really good job in the workplace of being segmented for it as a tool. And unsurprisingly, this conversation soon went to social media because social media is still not viewed like that. We don't, we're, we're getting better every year that goes by, we're getting better at using it as a tool. But we're still not there, and which is why our conversation uh, really went down this, this rabbit hole of social media. And I was surprised actually how, how tech-focused it was, how future-focused it was, I think we are we were discussing as far as like what we would like to see in the future, uh, acknowledging strengths and weaknesses of our communication platforms and and how they either enhance our ability to interpersonally communicate or detract from that. And soon into the political or not political, soon into the social media discussion, we had a lot of different opinions because some people are avid users, some people post a lot, some people are on every single platform, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and some people don't have any. Or like me, I have one Instagram. I don't really count LinkedIn because it's social, but it's also professional. But out of the, the core social ones we think of, I only have Instagram. But even though I only have one platform, I do use Instagram a lot, uh, a good amount. I mean, I'm, I'm on it a decent amount. I think it, it gives you like a social pulse. You see what's ha not only happening, but you see what other people are, are doing, for one. And what I'm trying to use it for is to share and see what people are thinking and feeling and talking about. And Twitter might be better for that, but I just have never gotten into Twitter. I've tried, and it was just like, I feel like I'm always thinking about converting my thoughts into tweets. And I just don't want to be thinking like that. Like That's why I, think it, that's why I believe it would be difficult to be a photographer. I think on one hand, it makes you more present. It allows you to appreciate beauty in an artistic way more than the average person who just walks down the street. Now, as a photographer, you're walking down the street and you're saying, wow, look at that tree with the light behind it. But then you're stopping and you're taking a picture of that. So I think I would love photography, but I also don't want to walk around being thinking about, oh, this would make a nice picture. 
because we already do that with with the advent of Instagram. We st- we still do that. So that's enough for me. The group was sharing their their concerns with social media, their their frustrations, and a lot that came up was there was two main themes. And again, I'm I'm probably missing some, but because my lack of notes, I have some. They're just really shitty. But the two main themes came uh, that stemmed from that were body image for Instagram models. You you see these beautiful people, but you don't see past that wall of well, how did they look like that? Are they do they have makeup teams? Are they wardrobe teams? Are they celebrities with like these huge groups of people making them look like that way? Or are they like a lot of Instagram models? Are they using an app that is actually enhancing their appearance in an artificial way so it's it's not the reality and i'm talking beyond a filter because a filter distorts color and contrast and shadow and and all of that stuff that makes it look and appear more artistic but then there's video editing apps where it's like making you skinnier or i don't know why people use that app that makes your face look like a doll like a fuzzy doll do they not like someone tell me someone reach out to me in confidence that I will not judge you I just purely want to know do you not think that we can tell and if so then that's fine that if you if you know that we can tell I guess that's better but if you if you use that app or whatever I don't even know what does that that makes your face look like this perfect little doll like it makes you look like a doll it doesn't make you look like a perfect human it makes you look like a (laughs) <laughs> like an inanimate object. Oh man, I've just I saw that with some people that I follow on Instagram, and I'm like, come on now. You look fine. You don't need that <laughs> because you don't want to look like a doll. <sighs> but we talked about maybe having a feature, and, and and this was pretty cool because we talked about different ways we could just better these platforms, to better serve us, and to, one, make them more of a tool that they are, to help us realize them as a tool, to enhance our lives socially, but to also help our, our, our psyche, to help our collective psychological state, which, as research is revealing, has revealed, and will only continue to reveal the impact, the negative impact of social media on our psyche makes us more isolated which is the number one cause of early death is just if you're alone you will we can directly attribute that to an early death so isolation depression anxiety jealousy this uh, attention all of these things are are challenged with social media so how can we mitigate those or lessen those and get to a point where like we are with cigarettes All right, if I'm going to smoke a cigarette, then I know I'm smoking a cigarette and it's going to be bad for my body. But I am, as an autonomous, conscious being, the most conscious being on earth, humans, not me, (laughs) that I can say, all right, I want to smoke a cigarette because I want to. Or I want to eat McDonald's because I want to eat McDonald's. Actually, last night, I had a ton of McDonald's and it was delicious. But I knew that I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to feel that great. And... Spoiler alert, I didn't feel great when I woke up this morning, but I haven't had 
their chicken sandwich in so long, and I'm selling myself short. I ate two chicken sandwiches and some fries and a McFlurry because, of course. But at least I knew that that was the case. So the average person, I mean, there's 3 billion-plus social media users, the average person using a social media platform is, does not think about it in the critical way that in the critical way that I do, and I think about it more critically because it it applies to what I do. I am not only invested in that way, but now I've developed this emotional investment where I've seen people in my world be affected by it. I am affected by it. I know I feel like shit sometimes when I'm using it, and I know that it's hard for me to not use it. And when I move my app around intentionally on my phone, that it I go to that just to open it up when I don't even realize I am. I just do it as a, many would say an addiction. Some might just say habit, but whatever it is, that is the current state of things. So we discussed maybe as a tool or as a little feature, added features, that if you look at an Instagram picture, if you're posting it, it's either like maybe there's, instead of having to do like no filter, there would be like a, like a like a you see on uh, a bag of chips. These are gluten free. These are non GMO. These are organic. What if there was a check where this is no filter, this is not edited. And this would be good for celebrities, right? People with more eyes on them that are doing this. But there's not. This has not been tinkered with uh, with that <laughs> that doll face app or whatever. This is not photoshopped. Actually, my girlfriend mentioned this. Uh, uh, Blake Lively one time posted a picture, and she said. Don't let this fool you, and I, I haven't seen it, but we were just talking about it. But she said, don't let this fool you. I've, it took four hours and nine people for me to look like this. And granted, she's a very beautiful woman, just without any makeup, without anything. So I'm always surprised at that. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> I feel like you could look like that without four hours or nine people, like if you just put on your own makeup. But I'm not a, I'm not a makeup guy. I don't like... I, I don't not like it when my girlfriend wears makeup. I just think she looks better without it. And in the same way that she thinks I look best in like like crummy clothes, like a, a worn down t-shirt and a hat. So I don't know why that is. but So having some sort of feature which would tear down that wall like Blake did, but without having it to be like a statement. Now it's, no, this is not tinkered with. This is me. So breaking down that wall. And then the other feature we talked about was the like button. So what if you could just get rid of that? Or at least have the autonomy to say, I don't want to receive likes on any of my pictures. I'm just sharing to share. Which I would have a huge interest in that because part of the, you know, we discussed the negative implications on our on our on our mental states, like as we can just feel them, like research aside, like just how you feel when you're on social media. And we talked about, like we troubleshooted about what we could improve. And everyone agreed that not having likes would be awesome because you wouldn't have the desire to check likes. You wouldn't feel one way or another, depending on some completely arbitrary number of people that have scrolled past it and tapped a button. And it would change the nature of social media. My personal frustration with it is, and and someone said this, that it's either a place to be entertained, so be that memes, place to laugh, videos of like people doing stupid shit, or 
Instagram models, that is entertainment, it's visual entertainment, or a place to brag. And I think that right now, when everyone posts a picture, they're thinking about how is everyone else going to not only perceive this picture and what I'm doing, but perceive me with regard to the picture I posted. And I think of this even with Open-Minded Chris, where the way that I'm trying to use this platform, and actually the way I'm trying to use my personal platform more and more, is to to share is to do exactly what I'm doing with the discos and the podcast is to just share what I'm thinking about feeling curious about working on. And the point of that is to see if other people are too, because it's, I mean, it's why social media was started in the first place. Katerina fake lived, who founded Flickr. She lived in a small town and she started Flickr because she wanted to, it actually might've been like cats or something like that, but she wanted to find people outside of her small town that shared her her views and were thinking about the same thing she was and passionate about the same, uh, yeah, similar passions. And she did that to f- and realized, wow, there actually are a lot of people all over. They're just not in my specific area. And that's how I'm using it is that I don't, I mean, we're all busy, right? It's We don't have the time to, to go to every club, every meetup, every talk in our industry and to find similar people. That's the beauty of social media is that it, it eliminates it or it better facilitates the physical. And whether that's something like romantic relationships, okay, I don't really, I'm a busy person. I don't have time to go out there and date. I'm going to use this platform, which is going to help point me in the right direction. Now we can get together in person. Even though you might not always get together in person or when I share things, I might not, the person might be in California and it might be a friend that I didn't, I haven't talked to in years, but they're actually over there working on the same thing. That's the beauty of f- social media is that it facilitates those types of connections. But when you have a, a vain platform like Instagram, which I love Instagram, but I hate feeling vain. I hate feeling like, oh, I'm putting myself out there. And I think a lot of people in the, our group specifically would benefit and would enjoy a platform where where we're almost us as a person is decentralized so the way that i use social media it, it might not be the right use for these platforms so these platforms might not be right for my use i think and again i'm just dishing out billion dollar ideas here but I think a better platform or maybe a feature of Instagram or Facebook, kind of like Venmo, like a a more topic, activity, passion, interest-oriented Venmo. So Venmo, it's a payment processing platform. We go out to dinner, I pay so I can get the credit card points, which that's like a big thing with me and my friends. Like, I'll pay, I'll get the points, bring it on. But then everyone Venmos you what they owe you, respectively. But it's it's cool because there is a social element of Venmo. You can say, yeah, you lost this bet. You suck. haha," And that could be your caption. And then your other friends can see, oh, man, what bet did, did Lance lose? What an idiot. And that's a way to socially engage over something like payment, which is boring and transactional. So what if there was something where, all right, I'm really, you know, I've been reading a lot about Western philosophy, but unfortunately at my nine to five job, I don't know anyone that's interested in Western philosophy. And honestly, none of my friends are either. 
how can I connect with people who are so I can just talk about this and, and, and kind of crowdsource knowledge and, and feedback and, and refine my views and, and thoughts around some of these philosophers that I might not be able to independently. So that is a platform that I would enjoy. I think that if you remove the like button or kind of these metrics that are tailored to popularity or like popularity of the post, right? I would, I would rather have, all right, I'm posting, I'm in the museum. I'm looking at this thing about Western philosophy. I'm posting it. Here's what I've been thinking. Now I can start a group and now I can like pull people in who are also interested in that. We talked about those like minor features, but the trouble with all of this is that at the end of the day, as much as we want this, Facebook, Instagram, I know they're the same company, but I talk about them separately. Twitter, all of these groups are, they are not incentivized by removing the like button. I mean, the like button was created or it was implemented officially because they looked at the data that resulted from it. Holy shit, people love this button. They are using it more, they're interacting more, they're engaging more. And engaging, we're just talking about data here. So time spent on this time spent on the site, cross engagement between platforms. But it's also causing some people to be really sad. But because that their business model revolves around those KPIs, so key performance indicators, time spent on the app, number of users, they're not gonna remove something that is directly driven results and with results revenue. So they're not really serving us, which is the, the trouble with social media, which is why I'm a little more critical of it just because I, <laughs> I know how they make money and it's not to serve us, it's to serve advertisers. And that's another point. Social media is a great way to spread, to spread information if you're a business owner. If you're passionate about making pastries and you can tailor your content and your ads to people who love to consume pastries, well then you've done a, social media has done us a service. But we agreed as a group, which I think most people listening or out there, the general public would agree that there's just something off about it. A lot we can't articulate, a lot we can't, a lot that we're going to learn over the next several years, continue to learn as research has more years of data to work with. And that's just how it goes. We didn't always know that processed food and GMOs were bad. Now we do. Now we can make that decision. We can avoid it if we want. That is kind of, that's the world I dream of, which is not going to be far off. I just, I, I wish it was here a little sooner. But as Kevin Kelly, uh, one of my favorite technology writers, I think he was one of the original, original Wired editors. I'm reading a book of his right now. And he mentions that it takes us about, as a society, 20 years to decide what to do with something, technology, invention, any sort of advancement. And that's, that's a helpful insight, but it's also troubling because whereas before we had the typewriter, we could, something came out, or let's say the keyboard, the computer, we say, all right, this is better than a typewriter because I can save, I can delete, I can edit more. But we had time to implement that in our, in our lives. And there's some things that we say we don't need anymore. But the, the, the challenge with that year is that now technological advancement is, is, is exponentially increasing. So if it takes us as a society 20 years, well, then we need to figure out a way to 
better evaluate this new tech, especially with AI. And I know you, I mean, listen to Joe Rogan and Elon Musk talk about AI. I'm not going to get down that rabbit hole because we did get down kind of the AI, the automation rabbit hole in our discussion, which book recommendation alert, light in the tunnel. That was one that a couple people, including myself, have read and we talked about. Uh, talks about technology and AI's impact on our future economies. And I don't want to get down that deep rabbit hole because I've been there. We actually went down that rabbit hole during our disco. But the the key insight from Kevin Kelly is that with this knowledge that takes us about 20 years, we need to either figure out a way to expedite that, that you know, shrink that down to 10 years, or create some advisory board that objectively evaluates new tech, which I see as more problematic because who are those people evaluating it? And no one can really know at the end of the day. But I think acts like this, like getting together in person, talking about something like social media, which you're not really talking about that much, you're just using it, is helpful in how we will shrink that down if we can more effectively and productively communicate about these mediums of communication. Overall, our conversation around social media touched ways we can improve it, its existing forms. What would a new form look like that maybe was less narcissistic? Like Venmo is not narcissistic, right? It's not about you, but you can, it's social. I can see other people's payments. Removing the like button, adding that, that stuff around filters or edits to the pictures, like some sort of verification or at least just a little symbol at the bottom. And to tie this all together, so why? What would this actually do if we remove the like button? The story I told at the disco was a couple years ago when I saw this girl on a bus. She was probably 22, 23, 24. And she was on the bus. We were commuting home. We, us together. No, I, I didn't know her. I just was sitting. Uh, I was sitting next to her. And she looked so sad. But what she was doing on her phone the entire 20, 30-minute trip was refreshing the likes on one of her Instagram posts. I don't know if she was, obviously I didn't ask her like, hey, what are you doing? But she was just refreshing over and over. And I don't know, I don't know if she was looking for someone. I know that's a thing. Like if you're, you know, in, this, in like the flirty phase with someone, you're seeing if they like your stuff. I get that, even though I don't, I still don't support that. Or if she was just looking to see how many likes she got. Because yes, she would get out of the app, but then like 30 seconds later, she would get back and check it. And it just, it broke my heart, genuinely, because I didn't know that girl, but I'm going to assume that she's a, uh, a human being that has some, something unique about her, um, it, it, and it's not that she's like a, a child a music prodigy or something like that, though she could have been, you know? She could have been this immensely talented individual and yet she is subjecting herself to all those feelings that you get from checking to see how many likes you have, which I think everyone has done that. And ever since that day, I've never checked to see how many likes I've gotten. I'm not saying I've never seen it because if someone comments and I want to comment back, I, I definitely, you know, you see that. But I've never gone, I wonder how many likes I get or to see if someone's liked it. 
Because also, if you just think about it from like a rational standpoint, what's the benefit? There, there's none. There's it's a lose lose because there's there's even the best case scenario, you get a ton of likes, whatever that means to you. It's still very. Tem it's not like it, in the way that we as humans are fulfilled and happy. That doesn't provide us happiness. That provide a, provides us the happiness that a a sugar rush provides or like something that just provides some very immediate, you know, you've heard the term immediate gratification. That is in a nutshell what it provides you. So yes, it gives you a fleeting feeling of happiness or joy, but to you, to your brain, to your body, it doesn't do shit. And then the alternative of <laughs> that's best case. So worst case or bad case is you don't get that many likes. So that person doesn't like your picture. Well, now you're just thinking, you're analyzing the shit out of yourself. You're saying, all right, well, what did I do? Why do people perceive me in a way that they don't want to give me likes? Why didn't this person like it? Do they not like me? Well, you know, what's going on? So now you're just, it, it's the opposite of being, it's like the opposite of why people meditate and be mindful. It's like you're, you're, beep, beep. You are creating these thoughts for no reason at all, except for you're using this platform that's creating those thoughts for you. Uh, the last thing we talked about as it relates to social media is FOMO, which, you know, we've all heard that term, fear of missing out. And uh, I thought it was cool because for the first time ever, uh, someone spoke up and they said, you know, we've all dealt with FOMO. But I actually, uh, you think of a different phrase, JOMO joy of missing out and and he he was like i i have joy when i miss out on things because i know that i have made the the informed decision around why i'm not there and he's like i look forward to the nights where i'm hanging in and not going out and everything hit close to home for me because i do like to entertain in its most basic form most like my friends my family i love making my family laugh my friends laugh when vine was out i was a huge viner but i didn't have i didn't have like followers it was just my buddies but i would create videos because i knew that they would find them funny and for me it was enjoyable it's difficult for me personally to find the right form maybe that doesn't exist maybe the form does exist it just needs some tweaks but at the end of the day Will Facebook or Instagram or Twitter do that? If it means sacrificing revenue, probably not. And that's that's where I butt heads with them. And I, I back to the original question. So why does it matter? Why does interpersonal communication matter? Well, if you look at how our communities formed, and again, book recommendation alert, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Sapiens, I think, is one of the best books ever written. And granted, I've read like 0.001%. Maybe that's way too high, but of all books ever, ever created. But it is just, it blew my mind as, as to how are we where we are today? From an evolutionary standpoint to a societal, cultural standpoint, how are we, how did we create a microphone that we can speak into, that we can save that audio clip onto a computer that we can then put onto the internet that is powered by virtual clouds that are then backed up into servers and these huge data centers. It's like, how the hell did we do that? And there's two main themes from that book. 
it is communication. So we develop the language. We develop the ability to tell stories, which is the foundation of our, our political structure, our economic structure, our religious and spiritual structures. It's basically what has formed our modern-day society. So the ability to communicate, but then once we can communicate, the ability to gather in tribes. So tribes were formed out of the ability of us as homo sapiens to say, hey man, I am getting mauled by tigers out there. I am getting like absolutely destroyed. My family, like my brother just got eaten alive. They're over there. Like don't go over there. So then we now we become a little smarter. And they're like, hey man, I'm getting dumped on. Not by elephants, but like rain. Like I'm getting just dumped on every night. Do you want to like build something together that maybe we could live under? That is how we form these tribes and then taking that to, you know, something modern day examples like Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs had a vision. He communicated that vision, that story to people and then was able to bring on some talented individuals to help realize that vision. And fast forward, now they are uh, the first trillion dollar company ever to exist. So if we look at our modern day society, the ability to communicate, the ability to to do so effectively, the ability to gather together in communities is very, very important. And it's not just important for our past, it's important for where we're going. Because we're going to be dealt with a lot of shit that we don't know what to do, what to do with, and we're going to need to talk about that better. That's the inspiration for the question, my personal investment to this topic. It is something very important to me. I mean, even the book, even the book Sapiens is just, it's, it's really kind of upped the importance for getting together in person, communicating effectively. I think there was, oh, there was one more thing I wanted to mention. Oh, yeah. All right, the last thing on, on social media and interpersonal communication I'll mention is, is actually something that wasn't brought up by someone else at the disco. It was brought up by a friend, Nick, who you'll be hearing from later. He was talking about how... He he made the statement that no one has fun with it anymore. And I thought that was really interesting. And I don't even know if he said anymore. He just said no one has fun with it. It's it's too serious. It's too... Everyone's, you can feel the anxiety of every person when they post, the caption. The It's like you know that they're thinking about it much more than they should be thinking about something as trivial as posting a picture. And I think we, 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 so we brought this up and I think the response is that, or the, the sentiment around this, like why, if we, if we try to analyze that, well, why is that the case? And I think it's because there's this pressure to be someone. There's this pressure to be, have this front, to have this brand, this personality. And I think it's largely inspired by the world of influencers. And I wasn't, <laughs> I'm going to bring up my phone. I wasn't even going to bring this up because, I don't know, I just, I just wasn't going to bring this up because I don't, I'm not like trying to start any drama or put anyone on blast, but I don't know this guy. Lewis Howes. Okay, so Lewis Howes, for those of you who do not know who he is, he is a influencer. He's like a, a young Tony, younger Tony Robbins. He's probably like 30 to 33 and he's got a podcast called School of Greatness. He's this ex-NFL football player, 
good-looking dude, fit guy. He uh, and he comes from a good place. It seems genuine. It seems like he's just trying to be real. So I appreciate him, and this is why I don't want to put him on blast because I actually do think he's uh, he's doing good in some form or fashion. But then I get this ad. I see this ad on Instagram, and it's Lewis House sponsored. And the ad, the first, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the first line in his caption is, 10 steps to get your next 10,000 Instagram followers. So I screenshotted that, and I said, I put like a little text over it, and I said, I hate seeing this shit. We should be promoting adding value, not adding followers. Quantity will never be more important than quality. And then I added his ass, Lewis Howes. I wasn't expecting him to see it, so I'm glad I wasn't like an asshole. I don't see a point in getting, spending any emotional energy on celebrities or people who don't care about what you say and what's that going to do? They're just going to see it and it's not going to help you. It's not going to help them. So I added him and I thought it was really cool because he responded to me in a DM and he sent me a little heart and he goes, sorry you hate it. I'm not going to read this whole thing because we talked for about two days on and off and he responded saying, sorry you hate it. Quality content and quality leads is what helps grow business. So I responded, and I agree. I said, I appreciate the response, and as a business owner, I can appreciate that. What I genuinely struggle with when I look at the world of social media influencers is the message sent to others trying to grow their businesses by increasing followers rather than increasing value, which will ultimately lead to more followers. You got to where you are today by being authentic and helping others, which to me is a different message than you are sending in this ad. And, and he responded, oh, this is the last one I'll read. Yes, thanks for recognizing that. For me, it's all about value. But people want more followers. He put that in quotes. So I give them what they want in the ad, but in the training, it's all value teaching how to give more and help more to your audience and to attract more clients. And then in a nutshell, the response I had is, I said, I just think it would be refreshing to hear an influencer say, fuck chasing views and likes, here's how to first add value with followers, being a positive externality of that value. So I think what he's getting at is, he hears, hey man, I need more followers, I need more followers, how do I get more followers, how do I get to where you are? So he hears this question, more followers, more followers, more followers. But he's kind of fell into this trap of, okay, now, because I've amassed these followers, I am going to somewhat opportunistically capitalize on that and I'm going to create this sponsored ad get more followers so then the person goes "Ooh, yes I want 10,000 more followers and then they go and buy that course so I get what he's saying he I think he probably feels this internal struggle I would hope he feels this internal struggle of well I didn't start out with you know almost a million followers I started out with 500 and then I started sharing this and I started talking about this and I started helping people with this and I started Now I got people together talking about these things or interested in these same topics. And as a result of that, he is now, has his own podcast. He has a bunch of hundreds of thousands of followers, almost a million. And it's good. He can now spread his message to a greater audience. And getting back to how this even started with people not having fun with social media, it's because people are so worried about getting followers. And that's the only metric we think of, so we assume that everyone is just out to get followers. So I like to think of every account and person I follow in four buckets. 
So the first bucket is your average user. These are mostly your friends, your family, your colleagues, the, the people who are just there to socialize, send pictures, send memes, connect with friends. There's really not much strategic thought, if any at all. Uh, at the most, there's some social thought. So how is this going to be perceived by my friends and that kind of anxiety I mentioned earlier? And though our society has trained us to track likes and followers, and obviously people want more followers than not, there's, they're not on it to amass a following. You know, your friends aren't there to get thousands of followers by just posting pictures of their meal or what they're doing day to day. The next two buckets I'm going to mention are groups who are trying to amass followers and likes and those metrics purely for those metrics because they benefit from those. So the first is pure entertainment. These are meme accounts and kids getting wrecked on scooters. These are accounts that are just entertaining you and they want more views and followers because they're entertainers. They're providing a value in the same way that Netflix also wants you to watch all of their shows and wants a ton of people watching all their shows. But these are different from the third bucket, which I call the frauds. These are the people who want to be influencers versus wanting to actually add value. So these are the Instagram models using their looks to now sell fit tea or all of a sudden they're fitness experts, but they're not really teaching you anything. There's, there's no passion or, or innate interest there. They're just working out and selling products. And I, I follow this one account. I won't say his or her name, but he or she is a good-looking person, and they post workout videos, but they're just doing air squats in a weird place, or they're doing lunges, and, and they're talking about the yoga pants or the athletic pants they're wearing. Damn it, I gave it away. It's a girl. But they're talking about the yoga pants they're wearing, and they're not actually teaching you anything about the workout. They're just doing lunges in a cool place, they're not saying, hey, this is the right form for a lunge. Often they're not even saying anything. There's like some music behind it. And it's like, oh, is this supposed to get me jacked up about should I go outside now and do lunges in my, my parking lot? So these are the marketing frauds. And then the fourth bucket are the genuine value add accounts. So these are the people who are passionate about what they do. They are tru truly looking to share their experience and insights with anyone that's following. They're looking to pull people closer to them who share similar passions and interests. And a few accounts come to mind when I think of this fourth bucket, the genuine value-added accounts. Uh, the first that I mentioned is the accounting account, the CPA, this random dude who's posting little, little case studies and interesting accounting-related facts related to news. He's just genuinely trying to add value to people who might be learning accounting. They might be business owners that can pick up on little information that, that they forgot in college or high school. And he's just trying to share information. He's, he's clearly passionate about it, and he's trying to help people. And you can tell that by the content. And then the second account I think of, that hissing noise is my, my, uh, I've got a, very old school heater in my apartment. And I guess 
I think today is the first day it's been on. But it hisses sometimes. Anyway, so the second account is Dr. Rhonda Patrick. And she is a PhD nutritionist and researcher, and she posts about nutrition and body and mind optimization. So she'll have a post about uh, the, the benefits of cruciferous vegetables to reduce brain inflammation or the benefits of sauna treatment for 30 minutes a day. And she tests these things out and, and shares these insights with her following. So why? Why look at it like this? And I think there's a couple reasons. The first is that I think it'll help social media be a more healthy and productive place. When we can break down this weird social barrier of assuming that everyone's main intention is to get likes and, and followers and views, then can we encourage people to be more authentic? Getting back to that quote about uh, the, biggest, the greatest accomplishment is being authentic. If you're the average user, you shouldn't have to think so hard about it. You should just post a pic when you want to, or a status when you want to, or a tweet when you want to, for whatever reason you want. But when we see Instagram models, then we can look at them and say, okay, this is entertainment. Or when we see people in that fraud bucket, we can say, hey, they're trying to sell me on something. They're, they're using their influence to market and to make a profit. And then when we see people being authentic and going out on that limb, that island, that few people go out to and sharing their passions and interests, then we can hopefully support them because when we make initiatives to, to be more authentic and to work towards our more authentic selves, then we hope that in turn we can get the same because that's what it's all about, right? Being authentic. You only have your own authenticity, so why try to be anything else? And when I look at social media, I think it can be such a more productive place to encourage authenticity and when you see people sharing things you can entertain the idea that some people are actually trying to connect and actually trying to use social media for what it's used for as a tool as a tool to foster social engagement and to connect you with other people who are like-minded or share similar interests or passions and the second reason is because this is our time we're talking about. This is our most precious and non-renewable resource. This will help us better understand that when we are spending a lot of time on social media, and I think it's on average two to three hours per day per person, there is a shit ton of stuff going on outside, so I apologize. But th this will help us better understand that when we are spending time looking at pictures or statuses or whatever it is that we are, we can actually be conscious when we're doing so and, and just view it as what it is. Okay, I am being entertained right now uh, just in the same way that we view Netflix. I think this will help us shift social media towards this, away from this weird social vortex that we're in right now where we're, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like a Black Mirror episode. They have an episode about how everyone has like a ranking system. We're, we're pretty much there, we just don't call it that. We call it followers and likes. But it's a weird ranking system that has kind of flipped the quality-quantity equation on its head. And I think about this personally because for open-minded Chris, when I, when I look at, well, what should I care about? And what, what KPIs are important to me? When I think about that, it's, it's member engagement at the discos. So are they enjoying it? Are they getting a lot out of it? Are they coming back? 
And that's what's most important to me. And when I look at the podcast, this was actually a byproduct of the discos. The discos are the most important part. The podcast is just a means to share that. So in a way, I do hope that there's a lot of listeners because I believe that the insights that are coming from a group of eight people that don't know each other, that are sitting down and talking about meaningful topics, I think that's important. And I think that's worth consuming. I think it's worth sharing, which is why I'm doing it. And that's what the discos are all about. But I also want the right type of people because I've seen people gravitate towards this and I've seen people, even close friends, be pushed away by this, not being able to understand why I'm doing this. And that's something I've had to accept. So in the same way that the accountant doesn't want or need everyone, we need the right type of people. And that's actually the initiative, a book that has inspired me a lot is the book uh, I always mess this up it's either tribe or tribes I think it's tribes by Seth Godin and he talks about sharing what you're thinking about or passionate about because that's the whole point of social media it's a tool and you should use it to find more people who can help support that or you can get together as as the title suggests in a tribe and realize the benefits that come from a tribe Again, back to sapiens. That's the formation of our entire society is that ability to communicate and gather together in tribes around one shared goal or interest. We just need to do a better job of having fun with it. If we can have fun with it, then we can be more authentic and and not think about quantity. We can think about quality and say, who are our followers? Are they the people that actually support me, my true friends, the people that I'm, I'm working with in, in my professional aspirations. And when I look at influential figures on social media, and influ- influential is a whole new meaning these days, but truly influential thinkers, intellectuals, leaders, entrepreneurs, scientists, they have like 10,000 to maybe 100,000 followers. I think you know, Mark Cuban probably has the most as an entrepreneur or, or Gary Vaynerchuk. But Shikashi69, as Chris D'Elia would say, Shikashi, he always messes up his name on purpose, but Takashi 69 has like 10 million followers. And I actually don't mind. I, I couldn't name one song, but I've heard like a few songs of his. They're, they're, it kind of is like angsty, angsty rap rock in a way. The genres are just blurring, which is pretty cool, but... He's got like 10 million followers, Bad Baby's got probably like 15 million, and it's just funny when you look at people who are actually changing the world, they've got like 20,000 followers. So I think if you just acknowledge that, and, and then we can just better understand what we're looking at, and we'll not place value on, like when I look at Takashi 69 yes, he is an artist. But he's also, he's a personality. The hair, the tattoos, his followers are a product of his personality. Just like Bad Baby. I think I, did I, I, think I talked about her in the intro. I, I got to stop talking about these people. But this is exactly why it is the way it is. Uh, but, you know, she started on Dr. Phil and now she has a rap career. So I think if you just look at it for what it is, then you can view it as entertainment or as the fraud, the fraud bucket, whatever bucket you want to attribute to it, I think it's just helpful 
to be conscious when you're viewing or consuming on these on these platforms. My last thought on this is I think we should support any acts of authenticity whenever possible. Because I put this off for months, maybe even over a year. I've had this written down several times in my notes, like just start this. Uh, but what held me back was the, well, what if this and what if that? And the fear, the fear of, of being judged and, and having people talk about you in a negative way. But at some point, if it's a strong enough desire, then we will break past that, that fear and choose authenticity. You know, one of my high school friends quit his commercial real estate job to start a wood, uh, word, uh, a woodworking shop. And that was awesome. And he shares the products he's making and furniture he's experimenting with. And that's cool. I mean, because obviously he started a business, but he's being more of his authentic self. It has a history in his family. And it's, it's so great to see people being authentic. And the people of my, I have a couple friends that are really into health and nutrition and fitness. And they're being authentic. And actually what's interesting about all of this is I wasn't always like that. I, I didn't actively not support people or talk trash about them. I just wasn't as aggressively supportive of other people. So it's, it's a pretty cool effect that you realize the closer you get to your authentic self is that now you just you can, you can see authenticity. It's like you have an authenticity radar. And you see when people are doing things that are genuine versus in that, that fraud bucket. And it's almost like you turn up the jets in your support because they've broken down that barrier and you're almost like on this, the same playing field of, hey, I, I get you. I understand you. From a detail standpoint, I might not understand anything about yoga or fitness or whatever, but I understand what it took for you to do this, what it took for you to, to talk about something that you're truly interested in and to try to help people and try to share that. I believe eventually we will step outside of this social vortex that we're sitting in and we will celebrate authenticity. We will better understand what we're consuming and we will celebrate the people working towards their authentic selves and we'll, we'll do a better job at discerning between the two. Who's out here for, for the clout, for the likes, for the views, and who's actually just trying to, to share and to find people who are also interested or passionate about what they are. And with that comes a celebration of weirdness. And I think we've seen a resurgence of the word weird and weird is now a good thing. Nerdy is a good thing. And we will look at average. The word average is tough, right? Because it's such a negative word. If you're average, that's like, if you're basic, if you're average, that's awful, right? You don't want to be either of those. But more so than what that means as it relates to your career or your personal life or anything else like that, I think average will be a term we use for people who aren't able to step out of this social vortex and be them, their authentic selves. People who are too caught up in what other people think, who are ignoring their, what, their uniqueness, what makes them them, which is all we have, right? Getting back to that quote again, authenticity is our greatest achievement in a world that is constantly trying to make us everything but our authentic selves. So I think when you think of average, 
I believe eventually average will be associated with people who are not acknowledging that peace inside of them that is really the most truly unique thing about each and every one of us. So instead of trying to amass likes and followers, if we can pay attention to quality, are we, are we surrounding ourselves with the people who are going to support our goals and aspirations and interests and needs and, and desires and what we want in this world, what we want out of our lives? Only then is that when we can break away from the average. Because if we, if we have FOMO and if we are trying to do what everyone else is doing, then that will lead to being average, as the way I define it. A very interesting conversation around how we communicate, how technology has created new forms of communication, how those are impacting our professional lives, our personal lives, our, our mental states, and how they're in, impacting our ability to communicate, to, to gather in communities. In some ways, they're facilitating it. In some ways, they're, they're making us get way too in our heads about something as trivial as sharing pictures or thoughts. After we tied up our conversation around social media, I brought up open-mindedness and that, and that piece to the question. So why does being open-minded matter? And I am so glad that we, that we talked about this and I, and I brought it up because we could have talked about social media for hours more. But I'm glad that we shifted to this because I was seeking, again, I, I, I've been relating a lot of these, or these, the talking points to my personal life. But I brought up open-mindedness because I was seeking insight and advice around a fundamental shift in one of my closest friendships. And out of respect for this friendship, I don't want to divulge any details, but just take my word for that. It is related to the topic of open-mindedness. So I brought up open-mindedness, and what I realized is people think about that phrase differently. And to me, I have such a, uh, a clear definition in my mind. I mean, it's, it's the basically the name of this podcast, but to other people, it doesn't mean the same thing. And the way I view it is I view it pretty much, pretty much like it's true definition, which is just a receptiveness to new ideas. But I think due to the hypersensitivity we now have as a, as a society around the need to be politically correct, that open-mindedness can be seen as this foo-foo, wishy-washy, like, oh, I'm so open. Everything, I accept everything. No, that is absolutely not how I think of it. The definition of open-mindedness, receptiveness to new ideas, it technically can be interpreted the way that some people interpreted it. And someone used mentioned the word curiosity, which I think is extremely important because, again, to go back to a definition, because I always like to, even when I'm thinking about terms or words or whatever, I always like to just look them up just to make sure I am, and make sure I am speaking about them correctly. So curiosity, it means a strong desire to know or learn something. And then once we got down to it, I realized that the way that I define open-mindedness is it's almost a hybrid of three things. It's a hybrid of the first two, so curiosity and open-mindedness. So, so you need the first curiosity to actively seek out new ideas with a strong desire to, to know about those, to learn about those. And then second, you have to 
be receptive to those new ideas. You have to be open-minded about them to then get to the third piece, which is taking that in, formulating your opinion, your, your philosophy around that new information, and then do something with it or don't or push it away. So what do we call this? I don't know. Maybe intellectual exploration is a, is a phrase that we can use that, that kind of incorporates this three-step process of seeking out that new information, ideas, insights, being open-minded about them. So maybe those are different than yours, but if you're open-minded and there are facts around it, research around it, compelling ideas, then being open-mindedness, being open-minded and then formulating, reformulating, crafting your opinion, your ideology, your philosophy around those, around whatever it is that you are actively seeking out. And because I was challenged, I joke around with one of my friends who joined us last for our first disco. I, I was joking around like when the whole squad roasting you because people were, I'd say like a few people felt pretty strong about the word open-minded. And like I said, there was some blurring where they were like, no, I think curiosity is more important. But I was like, oh, I think that's kind of what I mean. Like curiosity. So anyway, we, it was, I was challenged and I love that. That's why I'm there. That's why I propose these questions because I want someone to say, no, and here's why. And then now I can go back. Like before, I thought of open-mindedness in, a, in one way. And now I know that I need to differentiate between curiosity, open-mindedness, and the act of doing something with that new information you've, you've now sought out. So while the whole squad was roasting me, someone spoke up while we were talking about this, and they were like, actually, I'm not that curious. And I don't really ever feel the desire to seek out new things. I like my routine. I like my habits. I like my life, and I'm really happy. And I was like, that is awesome. Like, that is beautiful. That is what makes us so unique because I am fundamentally different. I cannot change that part of myself just as much as I cannot change that part of them either. And who am I to say what is better? Because... I might be less happy, more manic, more what, like sleep-deprived than them. They might have a healthier life physically, mentally, emotionally than I do because I am the way that I am. And the, the, as the cliche goes, ignorance is bliss. And it's not that they're ignorant. It's that they've, they've probably at one point experienced that doing new things, actively seeking out new ideas and they're, they didn't, it wasn't for them. So that's what makes us beautiful uh, as a human race. That's like, if you go back to the book Sapiens, that's why we are not swinging from trees anymore. It's because we've been able to differentiate ourselves based on our preferences and we've been able to communicate that and, and band in tribes based on what we like and what we don't like. I think I would push back a little bit on her to say, even though that's your preference as a society, if we were, if that was the majority, we wouldn't be where we are today. So it's beautiful that we do have such diverse humans, but I think that you absolutely, for progress standpoint, if you're assuming that we should keep progressing in every avenue of our modern day world, then you would say, okay, well, that's your preference, but we wouldn't be here if all of us were like that. But again, 
Now we're talking about things like leisure and happiness, which before we were trying to just not get murdered. Our world is in its most peaceful time, relatively. We just see a lot more shit. You didn't always see videos of people dying or getting their heads cut off or jumping off of buildings or getting shot by police. We didn't used to see that. Now we do, and it's it's brought some benefits but also some challenges. And even here in Chicago, we just heard the, the Van Dyke verdict, and that was a huge social win. That was the first policeman in 50 years convicted of a crime like that, and that's a huge social win because without dash cams, without access to information without being able to share these injustices, we would not be able to socially advance. So for the people out there who are fighting for our social advancement, I think that we're less patient as a society, but we should celebrate these little wins of, hey, this is a product of, of these social communication platforms. And in that regard, it's doing us a huge, a huge service. Uh, I know I got back to the, the social media stuff, but I just thought as far as the open-mindedness goes, and I know I was talking about how that the open-mindedness started up with me seeking advice around a friendship, but I, I was really, really impressed with everyone's ability to push back on me and challenge me as the moderator, as the person who brought them all in there, because that's, yeah, that's the point. I shouldn't be on some uh, off-limits area. No, I, I need people to help, help guide this for me. Back to the, uh, back to how this came about. So I was seeking advice and insight around a shift in a friendship. Because again, I don't really have people that I can talk about this with. Not all my, you know, I can talk about it with my parents and my girlfriend and maybe a select couple of friends who might understand the situation. But there's something about, like, I guess in the way that one seeks out a therapist, there's something about hearing unbiased feedback. So I took the opportunity to do so, and someone mentioned uh, or suggested I look into Aristotle's theory of friendship or philosophy on friendship. So I did. What I found is I'm actually going to pull a lot from this Medium article I found. As a refresher, Aristotle, one of the greatest thinkers of all time, he was a Greek philosopher, shout out to my ancient Grecians, and scientist, he was known as the father of Western philosophy. And if you think about how powerful that is, I mean, 2,000 years later, much of his work now guides our modern-day society. So he's kind of a big deal. So Aristotle, philosophy on friendship, it, it, there's, he outlines three different kinds of friendships. And this, this Medium article really helped simplify those and, and distill them to their basic qualities. So the first two friendships he describes are accidental friendships, meaning we fall into these friendships without realizing it, almost as a product of our environment. The first accidental friendship he describes is that of utility. Uh, and these are temporary friendships that provide a benefit to both parties. So when I, when I read this, I think of uh, my professional friendships. So friends that I've made at my companies that I've worked at. And most of us, or I think that this type of friendship is most common with adults because once that benefit ends, that utility ends, so do the friendships. And uh, as someone who's thinking about his professional friendships, though they haven't ended and I'm still friends with them and we still keep in touch and I still see them every once in a while, they're, they're different. We don't 
talk all the time or see each other all the time and we get together it's just catching up so uh, that is the first type of a friendship and you know once I left the company things changed for for better or worse it's not that we aren't friends but it's just showbiz baby that is my favorite meme right now for avid meme followers. I follow so many accounts uh, or Instagram meme accounts because I have a friend who actually the same person who said that social media he, he views it as either a place to brag or a place to laugh and be entertained. He, he sends all of our friends memes all the time. Probably like 80% of the accounts he follows are meme accounts. But I call him a meme. He, like I'm like, you should be a meme like a professional meme curator where you're sending people very customized, tailored memes to their lives. Uh, so like you'd have to get to know them personally, professionally, and then send them memes. Uh, and he already does that, but I think he's, I think he's onto something again, people, I'm just dishing out massively successful ideas, but that's just showbiz baby. All right. Anyway, I'm getting off, off topic here as usual. The second accidental friendship Aristotle mentions is grounded in pleasure and emotion. And when I read this, I think about the guys on my football team in both high school and college. I developed a very strong emotional tie to pretty much all the guys on the team. It's like 99%. You have the 1% of people that you just don't get along with that you just you have no desire to no mutual desire to really interact and Maybe you're just not interacting via, be it position-wise or, or what have you. But I think of football because football is a very emotional sport. And for a lot of people out there who have played sports at some point, I'm sure looking back on your sports teams, you were really close with most people. And though you may not talk to them, you still have like a unique bond with them because you've, you have mutually suffered together or just been through an emotional situation. There were guys on the team that were were linemen that I hardly interacted with, that we were in different organizations outside of football, different majors, barely ever saw them, but then we'd get in the locker room and we'd dance like idiots and and really enjoy each other's company. And it's people that you don't expect. So it's a product of, you know, you're you're putting in a lot of passion and emotion into something together that unites you. Before I get to the third type of friendships, I want to note that these first two, these accidental ones, are by no means bad. They just are limited in depth. And these are the most common types of friends in our, uh, that we find in our lives. And though they're of a lesser quality, we obviously want more depth to our friendships, they are still needed and present and will probably make up the majority. The third type of friendship is what we desire when we think of true friendships. And these are friendships of virtue. They're based on a mutual, mutual appreciation for the virtue the other person holds. Uh, and these two people in the friendship are in it because of the people themselves and the qualities they represent. That alone provides the incentive versus in the two accidental friendships, uh, utility and emotion are, the, are kind of that, that, that binding solution to the friendship. And the article quotes, Friendships of virtue take time and trust to build. They depend on mutual growth. They endure time, and it requires a level of goodness in the other person, or in each person, for them to exist. And I'll, I'll again, tie it to a personal friendship, is 
my friend Nick, and he and I have developed a very strong friendship of virtue because we've seen each other at our lowest points, and we've seen each other grow out of those, and we've, we've mutually grown together. And the reward that we've gotten from this friendship is being there for each other, but also, as Aristotle notes, is that these friendships of virtue also provide you. They're amazing because they also provide you utility and pleasure and emotion that you would receive in those other less deep friendships. So it's like you kind of have, not only do you have the utility and the emotion, but you also have something that's deeper, that's more profound that you connect on. Nick and I, are we didn't start out that way. We actually both laugh about our initial views of each other in college, where we like knew we each had a mutual best friend, but we were in different worlds. He played soccer, I played football. Um, he was an English major, I was an economics major. We were very different. But what we realized as we grew up is that we were each other's person that the other person thought they didn't have in their life. Like we looked around at our friends and we filled a void that wasn't filled otherwise. And we've really developed a strong friendship or virtue where we don't judge each other. We, we care about the other person for who they are and what they're thinking about, acknowledging that it's coming from a great place. And I think we're the only two that really see that only because we, we've taken the time to share a lot with each other. And I think it, the first, I, maybe the tipping point in our friendship was one night we got together and we were just hanging out in my place, having a couple beers. It was like Friday night we were staying in and we put on some, we both like rap a lot and we put on some rap and I think I just started freestyling. And they're like, oh, this is awesome. Let's freestyle. And then you know, we're both trash. We are garbage at freestyling. But then I realized when he was freestyling, I could tell he wanted to, like he was being a little reserved. And that's just how he is. But he was being a little reserved. And I paused it and I was like, dude, I don't care. I am garbage at this. Like you know that I am not, like know that right here and everything else in our lives, I will never judge you. Because I don't want to be judged when I'm just trying to mess around and, and experiment and freestyle or something like this, communicate my thoughts that I don't want people to judge me. So that's why when I see others doing stuff that I know took, took them some strength and work to get past that resistance that got them there to that point of sharing, of freestyling, of whatever it was, anything that's uncomfortable, I see that in the other person and I try to make them feel like they know they can keep going because there's at least one person appreciating that work, that, that effort that it took to reject conformity, to try to be your authentic self. So to tie this all together, had I not brought up open-mindedness in the context of a friendship that I had been struggling with, I would have never been recommended to look into Aristotle's philosophy on friendship, or it would have just taken me a long time because I, it, I haven't been thinking about looking into Aristotle's philosophies recently. But now that I do know a little bit about it, I, for the first time, have really critically analyzed what friendships mean and what they should entail and how there are different friendships and how those different friendships are inherently unique. And now when I have a work friend or professional friend, that of utility, a, 
a teammate or uh, a childhood friend that of emotion or someone that I, I viscerally connect with that I've shared a lot with that that we've we've mutually seen each other struggle and grow and and learn and progress so that of virtue now I can more effectively curb my expectations for those individual friendships and and know that what I'm going to get out of a friendship of virtue is not necessarily something I'm going to gain from a friendship of emotion or utility and and vice versa. So when I now reflect on why I've been struggling, I think what it boils down to is expectations. I was expecting something from a friendship that I shouldn't have expected. And that's on me. So I think that I was imposing my own, my own struggle, my own questioning of, is it me? What's going on? But really, it's all about expectations. And I think that applies on a more macro level as well. If you look at a career or a friendship or a relationship or really anything else in our lives. It's all about expectations. What are we expecting to get from that? And if we set our expectations really high or they're out of line, then we're going to be disappointed or we're going to be unhappy or we're going to be miserable or scared or any of the other feelings that come up from misaligning our expectations. I've experienced that in the workplace. I just told you about how I've experienced that with a friendship, and I'm sure a lot of us, I mean, relationships are probably the biggest area where we expect too much. We expect too much of other people, sometimes of ourselves. So this insight to friendship through Aristotle's philosophy is going to help me be a better friend to existing friends, to new friends. So I hope that helped you just as it did me. And to finally close out the conversation around open-mindedness, I want to share a visual that one of our discoers shared with our entire group, and it's a visual of how she interprets open-mindedness. And I absolutely love this because I have thought of it several times since our disco uh, as it relates to helping me better understand open, what it means to be open-minded, how I go about doing that, and visuals are just helpful. We are visual creatures. It's why I believe we love Instagram so much is because it's, it's easy. We, we have a difficult time communicating our, our, our feelings and our thoughts and articulating those. We're subject to language. We're subject to our vocabularies. But visuals help us understand things that we don't really need to explain. So she shared this visual with us. And I want you to picture a, a smoke ring. Okay, so now that you're picturing the smoke ring, that smoke ring represents your world, your internal world, your opinions, your thoughts, your philosophies, your ideologies, the mindsets that govern your life. And the reason why it's a smoke ring is because those weren't always in there. All the contents of this, that are included within the, this ring, this smoke ring, were at one point gathered from outside of that ring. 
So because it's a smoke ring, it allows us to extend ourselves beyond our, our world, our internal world. And what she drew outside of that smoke ring is a circle. And the circle represents something new, a new idea, a new philosophy, a new opinion. And this ring that represents, this smoke ring that represents our internal world, allows us, because it's smoke, to extend and, and grab that, understand it, evaluate it, and either take all of it or some of it in to our smoke ring and internalize that, or leave it there. And getting back to our, the difference between open-mindedness and curiosity, curiosity would be you seeing that and going after it. Being not curious would be seeing that and just staying within your smoke ring. But she was saying, I'm a very curious person and I'm constantly seeking what's on the outside of the smoke ring and, and then from there evaluating it to bring it in or to discard it or leave it there. I love this. And I, I really should have said it earlier when I was talking about open-mindedness and curiosity and evaluating new ideas. But I forgot, and here we are. But I, I love this because it much better describes how I view open-mindedness. And I think she and I are very much on the same page where open-mindedness is that smoke ring. Being closed-minded would be you have a an ice ring where it's maybe not impenetrable, but you can't easily pass through ice. And then maybe a variation would be a water ring where you can pass through it, but it's just not as easy as vapor. So this is how she thinks of it. I, I think that she's... Uh, she better articulated how I think of it. She put a visual around something I was trying to describe. So thank you to her. And I hope this helps you. Because even if you're open-minded, and let's not use closed-minded because I don't think anyone wants to admit or say that they're closed-minded. But even if you're not curious, let's say you're open-minded generally, but you're not going to be actively seeking out what's on the outside or on the periphery of that, that smoke ring. But regardless of what your ring is made out of, I think this will help us. And maybe if you want to be more curious or open-minded, this will encourage you to do so. And if not, then I think you can have peace of mind knowing that uh, your smoke ring is your own little ring, your own little world. And like I mentioned earlier, we live in a society where our metrics are shifting towards survival or shifting away from survival towards leisure and happiness. And that's just the way our world is headed. And I think we should celebrate that and, and celebrate the different types of humans that our modern day society creates. And that concludes episode number three. Thank you so much for listening. It means a lot. Unfortunately, this episode, we will not have a one-on-one -on -one chat with one of our members. I did record it, although the audio was pretty shitty. So I didn't include it in this episode just because it would be too hard to hear it and Anyway, I'm learning. I'm, I'm getting better at this each, each time I record. So thank you again. And if you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. Thanks.